And his one goal in writing was to give you certainty in a world of doubt. Certainty in a world of doubt has been our teaching series working our way through the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 15. This is my favorite chapter. I probably say that every week though, don't I? <laughs> I say that, yeah. No, really, no, really. This week, it really is my favorite chapter. This is an amazing chapter in the Bible. Okay, I've got a number of favorite chapters, but this is a good one, and, and you will see as we work through it. Extravagant God is the title of this weekend's message, and grab your sermon notes out, follow along. Um, this is what I want you to understand as, as we kind of set the groundwork for this study and as we read this text this morning. If, if you only knew the Father heart of God for you, if you only knew the Father heart of God for you, it would change everything. It would change everything. If you only knew the Father heart of God for you, if you understood what he thinks about you, the creator of the universe thinks thoughts about you and what he feels about you. He has feelings towards you. He adores you. I mean, it's, it's out of this world. And what he wants to do in and through your life, it would blow you away. It would absolutely blow you away. You would run to him unlike you have ever run to him before. If you only knew the Father heart of God for you, you would begin to make you would make your relationship with him life's greatest passion and purpose and pleasure. You'd find greater pleasure in relating to him and knowing him than anything else. And that's, that's what I want you to get from this. And you're going to see it. Believe me, you're going to see it this morning as we read through this text. We're going to kind of just soak in the text a little bit, absorb it. There's a lot of little nuanced things you need to understand about the text that will help you to apply these truths to your life. But that's where we're headed. Let's first pray once again, and uh, let's ask for God's help as he uh, reveals his truth to us this morning. God, we love you. We thank you for your presence here. How great, how great is the love that you have lavished upon us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are by grace through faith in your son, Jesus. The implications are stunningly beautiful. Give us greater revelation of that truth so that your perfect love, your perfect love will chase away all the inordinate anxiety and bitterness and depression that, that seems to creep into our lives. May that be chased away by your love for us. And through the study of your holy word, open blind hearts, heal wounded hearts, and may all of our hearts be ravished with the beauty and glory of who Jesus is and what he's done for us that ruins us for anything else. We pray these things in his holy and beautiful name. And everyone said, amen. amen. So let's begin reading. And I'm going to walk us through this uh, really slowly, maybe much slower than I have in the past. Notice in verse 1, chapter 15, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled 
saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, this is what you need to understand. This sets the kind of the groundwork for this whole chapter. If you don't understand these first two verses, you're not going to understand this whole chapter because Jesus is going to respond to their grumbling here with these three parables. And the two groups of people who had come to listen to Jesus correspond to the two brothers in the prodigal son's story. How many are familiar with this story, prodigal son? Maybe we know it kind of singular, prodigal son, but actually I prefer to call it the prodigal son's story. Both sons are prodigals, as you will see as we work through this. The two groups of people who had come to listen to Jesus correspond to the two brothers in the prodigal son's story. The tax collectors and sinners would correlate, correspond to the younger brother, that would be the irreligious crowd. You see that? Tax collectors and sinners. And then the Pharisees and scribes, that would be the religious group, they would correspond to the the elder brother. And you'll notice that Luke here, he says, we're drawing near. They were drawing near, that is the tax collectors and sinners. The progressive tense of the Greek verb conveys that the attraction of the younger brothers to Jesus, the tax collectors and sinners, were attracted to Jesus. This was an ongoing pattern in his ministry. This was something that was happening all the time. They were attracted to Jesus. And this puzzled and angered the elder, elder brothers. This puzzled and angered the Pharisees and the, and the scribes. And so they grumbled. And in fact, Luke summarizes their complaint. This man receives sinners and eats with them. In fact, even in the Greek, you could put, this man receives sinners and even eats with them. Almost kind of in a, they're shocked. Like, we can't believe this. To sit down and eat with someone in ancient Near East was a token of acceptance. And so they're, they're puzzled. They're going, they're not attracted to us. They don't come to our meetings and to our services. Why are they attracted to him? What's going on here? So, so Jesus responds to their grumbling, verse 3. So he told them this parable. And he's going to give us three parables, very, very rapid fire, three parables to show us his response to the grumbling of the Pharisees and to drive the gospel deep into our heart to show us the Father heart of God. Help us to see the Father heart of God. So he told them this parable, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. That's pretty profound what he's saying there, isn't it? Just like, wow, rejoicing in heaven. I would love to be there when that happens. And then he goes on to the next parable. The parable of the lost coin, verse eight. Or what woman having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house 
and seek diligently until she finds it. That's a key phrase. Seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And now he moves from those two parables to this third parable to really make a point here, to drive the gospel deep into our hearts. Verse 11, and he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And, and he divided his property between them. Now, this is what you need to understand about an inheritance, is that because he had two sons, he would split that up, but the older brother, the elder brother would receive two-thirds of the inheritance, and the younger brother would receive one-third of the inheritance. And in fact, you also need to know this. To ask for your inheritance while dad is alive is to wish that he was dead. And so the attitude of the younger brother is, I want your stuff, but not you. That's his attitude. Now, the traditional Middle Eastern father would be expected to respond to such a request by driving the son out of the family with nothing except verbal and physical blows. But this father doesn't do that, but simply divides the property. The word property here is an interesting word used a couple times there. It's, uh, the Greek word is bios. We get our word biology, which means life. Life. So the father's, and you need to know this, that the father's net worth was not in bank accounts, but it was in land. And so to lose your land would be to lose yourself and your standing in the community. And so the younger son is asking his father to tear his life apart. So as we walk through this, you're beginning to see the implications of this. Verse 13, not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. The word reckless living is, it literally means a life out of control. And it teaches us something. I think it's uh, really important. Anytime we try to get control of our life by running from God, we only end up giving up control of our life to other things. Because you see, you and I, we were created by God, for God, to give glory to God, to have him at the center of our lives, to, in essence, control our lives, to fill our lives, to direct our lives, to govern our lives, to guard our lives. And that's the sweet spot of life. That's what you were created for. That's where you're gonna find the greatest satisfaction. But anytime we think otherwise and we move away from God, and his control over our lives, and his direction, and his love, then what we do is we subject ourselves and we give up control of our lives to other things. Our lives are out of control, as we see in this son's, the younger son's life, the younger brother's life. Verse 14, and when he had spent everything, and severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. You also need to know this, too, and you know this. I've taught it long enough here is that if you build your life on the temporal, 
If you build your sense of meaning and happiness and purpose and hope on something that's temporal, it's just a matter of time. Famine's coming. You know that. And there's, we do that all the time. We take good things and turn them into ultimate things. We can do that with a marriage. You can do that with a bank account. You can do that with your kids. Do that with any number of things. But, but this is a warning. It's all coming to an end eventually. And so you don't build your life on those temporal things. This is what the young man did, thinking that that's where he's going to find ultimate happiness and peace and joy and all of those things. And And that all came to an end. So verse 15, so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs, the lowest of lows for a Hebrew son. Pigs were unclean animals. So he's he's in the field with the pigs, feeding the pigs, but it's even worse than that, verse 16. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, And no one gave him anything, but I love verse 17. This is the beginning of repentance. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. What am I thinking? What am I doing? This is crazy. That's what's going on here. He came to himself. I like the way the NIV puts it. It actually says he came to his senses. Early, early stages of repentance came to his senses. Now, what does that mean to come to your senses? What's going on in this young man's heart? What goes on in our hearts when we come to our senses? Because what happens is that it's when you realize that sin, that sin is the suicidal exchange of the infinite and eternal pleasures of God for the limited and fleeting pleasures of sin. You realize that sin is the suicidal exchange of the infinite and eternal pleasures of God. You're exchanging God for that which is limited and fleeting in in its pleasures. Yeah, there's pleasures in sin. There's no doubt about it, but it's limited. It's fleeting. By the way, let me just say, and I think there's a good warning here. I often think of well-meaning Christians who come along and see the younger brother in the pig pen, and they're just appalled, and they go, oh, I want to help you, and they jump in there and help him and get him out of the pig pen and hose him down and get him into an apartment somewhere and give him some money and kind of bail him out, only for him to return to the pig pen because he didn't come to his senses. He didn't come to his senses, and we tend to do that. We, we tend to interfere with the work of God, and so that's why we need to be really sensitive to the work of God and how we can contribute to it appropriately. We don't want to be enablers, and that's a hard decision. Because I know that we've, we've all had family and friends that are out on the streets and you're, you're thinking, man, somebody's got to do something. Somebody's got to do something. They're going to die. Yes, that's, that's the unfortunate direction they're headed. But until they come to their senses, all the help in the world is just going to go down the drain. He'll find himself right back there again. I think it's a great lesson for us. So we've got to be sensitive. What God, what do you want me to do? How can I respond? How can I help this person? So verse 18 This is the younger son who's in the pig pen. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So the idea here is that somehow I can earn it back. This is that internal dialogue. He's rehearsing his speech to dad. And and this next verse is, it's my favorite. It's 
It's one of my two favorites in this chapter because I can't, I can't hardly read this next verse without it bringing tears to my eyes. I just absolutely love it. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Oh my goodness, that's, that's so, it's almost overwhelming. When I, anytime I've ever read that, it's just like, oh my goodness. Literally, the, the Greek there, he smothered him. He smothered him with kisses. That's the heart of this daddy for his son, and it's revealing to us the father heart of God for us. Children, youth, women might run, but distinguished Middle Eastern patriarchs never ran. That was undignified. They'd have to pull up their robes, show their legs. That's what this daddy did. He was looking out over the horizon, just hoping, just hoping maybe, praying, oh God, bring my son back home. His longing for his son, he sees him at a distance and runs, runs to him. Oh my goodness. He shows absolute emotional abandon and smothers him with kisses. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. That's the father just completely interrupts his rehearsed speech. I mean, right in the middle of it, he's trying to say, Dad, I, I, I. Dad interrupts that speech and not even waiting for him to get cleaned up or to prove himself in any way, he tells the servants to put the best robe on him. Probably most commentators, most theologians would say it was the father's robe. Best robe. Now, when I, as I've walked through this many times before, I, have, I often imagine what would have happened if the father hadn't seen the son and went out to him and be the first to, to greet him. But what if, what if it was the, what if it was the elder brother that saw him and greeted him? What kind of a greeting do you think it would have been? Probably not good. If you're familiar with the story, you know this. The attitude of the elder brother is not good whatsoever. In fact, I'll guarantee you that the younger son would have never made it to the father. And I think it's a great lesson for all of us. Too often, there have been younger sons that have come home only to be greeted by an elder son to be chased away from dad before he had a chance to meet dad before he had a chance to really know the heart of the Father for him. I'm, uh, I'm very conscientious of that, and uh, typically elder brothers don't uh, usually last very long here at Desert Breeze. And um, 
we all have a little bit of that in us. There's no doubt about it. But, uh, but I, you need to know that dads, our Father in heaven, loves elder sons as much as he loves younger sons. Because you look at the, the story as we move on. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard what? Music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out, and this is the, this is the tenderness of this daddy came out, and the word entreated him means tenderly pleading with him. The reason why I said what I said, that usually elder, elder brothers don't last unless they repent, as we all need to do. This elder son needs to repent, and, and they need to hear the, the tenderly pleading words of the father. But notice how the elder son responds to the father, and he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Isn't that interesting? You notice when he says, look, literally, I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't even, very disrespectful of the father. He, he doesn't address his father. In, in essence, he's just saying, look here, look you. And then he just explodes with animosity and anger and hatred towards his father. I, I think we're, we're beginning to see certainly one of the characteristics of, a, of an elder brother here, and uh, we can all fall prey to this, you know that you got some elder brother going on inside of you when you hear about the sin of others or you hear about those that have been in sin and now they're coming back home and repenting and you respond with disgust versus compassion. Because that's what you see with the elder brother. He devoured your property with prostitutes. There's disgust. You killed the fattened calf for him. Disgust versus compassion. How do you respond when you hear of someone who's fallen into sin? There's almost this attitude it's like, I would never do that. That's the attitude. That's the attitude of disgust. I would never do that. That's way beneath me. If you're saying that, if you say that and you have that attitude of disgust, you don't know the wickedness of your own heart. The elder son doesn't know the wickedness of his own heart. The Bible's real clear about this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. How could we ever say, oh, I would never do that? You don't know, you don't know your own heart. You don't know the wickedness of your own heart. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. This elder brother has a sanctimonious, self-righteous, holier-than-thou kind of an attitude. How could we ever, how could we ever kind of have that attitude if we've come by grace through faith to Jesus and understand the cross and understand what Jesus has done for us? There's a lot 
you know, he says over and over again, you probably saw in the text, what is the deal about this fattened calf thing, you know? I mean, as you read through this, you go, wow, they're making a big deal about that. And as I've thought about that a little bit, let me ask you this question here, though, first. Who hated the return of the younger son more than anyone? Who hated the return of the younger son more than anyone? Most people would say, well, the elder brother. No, I'd say the fattened calf. <laughs> Sorry, I had to throw that one out there. Gotcha. Now the fattened calf, in fact, this is what you need to know about the fattened calf. In that time and place, you almost never ate meat for a meal. It was a delicacy. And so if you butchered the fattened calf, it was a party that you invited the whole village because it was so expensive. And so the elder son here is publicly, he's publicly humiliating his father by refusing to go to the greatest feast his father has ever thrown and also by refusing to call him father. Hey, you. That's what he's saying. It's, it's like, oh my goodness. As he explodes in animosity and anger towards the dad. Now, I thought about this and I thought about as a, as a father how I would respond to that as I'm going out and treating my son as I would go out and treat him because he's thrown, he's thrown a little bit of a temper tantrum. And I've got to be honest, way too many times I responded not like this daddy. I think back when my kids were growing up and, uh, and man, it's like I exploded on them. They exploded and then I exploded on them. You think you can explode? I can out explode you. You know, it was kind of like, it wasn't good. It wasn't good. I, I maybe did that one too many times, and so now we've paid for all of our kids' counseling now that they're out on their own. <laughs> but, uh, and we know that there's no, no perfect parents. We tried to do the best we could, and yet there were so many times I didn't respond appropriately. And I mean, this, is, this would be my, and this is what I was thinking. I was thinking, this kid, how dare him, you know? How dare you disrespect me and your brother? You get yourself in there and celebrate with the rest of us in this family. We're the Davis family. In this family, we don't act like that. We love, we forgive, we rejoice when younger brothers come home. Little lecture time, that's gonna go a long ways, huh? But what, the, the problem with that, and it took me a while to really learn that, problem with that is that that's behavioral modification rather than heart transformation. You're not working on the heart, you're working on their behavior. This daddy's working on, on heart transformation. He's working on the beliefs that drive the bad behavior. We tend to focus on the behavior. And, uh, you know, it's just, I, the great example of this real quick is from Genesis 3. When we look at our, our father in heaven and how he responded to Adam and Eve when Adam and Eve blew it, big time, major sin, God shows up walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and he doesn't come out and say, shame on you. What's wrong with you? I told you not to eat that, and look what you did. So he doesn't focus on their behavior. He focuses on their beliefs, and he comes in, and he says, where are you? Who told you? Who told you that you were naked? Did you hear the difference? It's not behavioral modification, it's heart transformation. What, what were your beliefs that got you acting out the way you're acting out? So we tend to focus on the, the, the behavior. We gotta focus on the beliefs. This is what this daddy's doing. See, the behavior is the, the fruit. That's the fruit but the root are the beliefs. It's always the beliefs. It's always the beliefs. 
And uh, by the way, we're going to do something uh, here. We're going to, in about three weeks, two to three weeks, let's see, one, two, actually, yeah, in three weeks, September 16 and 17, we're going to do, we're going to take a break from Luke series. We're going to do a three-week series. We're calling it Big Picture Parenting, Big Picture Parenting. It is a big picture view of parenting that will radically change not only your perspective of how God parents us, how God parents us, but how we are to impact the next generation. It's a teaching series for everyone, whether you have kids or don't have kids or grandkids or whatever. It doesn't matter. If you're an adult, you need to know how God parents you and then how we can have an impact on the next generation. And so we're going to talk about that, and you're gonna, it's just going to be just gospel-saturated really help us to understand the difference between behavior modification and heart, heart transformation. But notice how this daddy responds here to this son. And he said to him, son, the word son in the Greek is my child. This is tender. He's tender towards this elder son. It's it's fascinating, especially after this, how this elder son went off on him. He's tender towards him. I'm, I'm not saying that there aren't times where you need to be firm, and I think that there's a certain level of firmness in what he's saying here, but he's trying to take it back to to the beliefs of this elder son and how distorted his beliefs are and that's where he gets this, this kind of behavior that's not consistent with, with what God would have for us. And so, and, and he said to him, son, my child. Oh, the, here, here's, here's the other verse that's my favorite, okay? This is, I love this. I've been reflecting, I've been meditating on this verse. I would encourage you to do the same. He says, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. Okay, so you're anxious, you're angry, you're depressed, you're struggling. I know that many of you are struggling with life circumstances, maybe relationships, maybe financially. Here's the words of our daddy to us this morning. My child, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. That's powerful. And then it was fitting to celebrate and be glad. See, hear the truth? He's just, he's gonna level with him. He's speaking truth to him. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord to us. Now, this is a beautiful picture. Verse 31 is a beautiful picture of our relationship with God as a Christian. We have, what he's saying is that we have the fullness of joy of his presence. Isn't that what he said? You are always with me. You are always with me. So we have the fullness of joy of his presence and all the resources of heaven are on our side to meet our needs for time and eternity. I mean, it's astounding what we have just in that one verse. See, for a child of God, there is contentment and courage every day. We don't have to be intimidated by anything or anyone. Why is that? Because our daddy owns the place. Our daddy rules the world. We can trust his his perfect love, infinite wisdom, unlimited power. We can rest in that. That's why he starts off with those tender words. My child, you are always with me. All that I have, all, all that is mine is yours. Now, 
Notice how it ends here. This is a cliffhanger ending. Will the family unite in love and celebration? How will the story end? Well, Jesus never tells us. I mean, that's how it ends. Cliffhanger. That's how that chapter ends. Now, next weekend, we're going to come back to the chapter. I thought this chapter is too good to, to just go right on through it. We're going to come back next weekend, and I've titled next weekend's message, Don't Miss the Party. Okay? Don't miss the party, and uh, what is the party that God invites us to? So we're going to, what does it mean to experience the kingdom of God, and that the kingdom of God is, is like a, this feast or this party? What does that mean? And uh, so what is the party God invites us to? And then we're going to look also at what are the characteristics of elder brothers that keep them from the party? We're going to all see those characteristics in us so that we can deal with that because we want to be a part of the party and what he has for us. Now, okay, so here's here's where we're going with the the notes. Jesus is redefining for us God, sin, and salvation. Let's knock this out. God, sin, and salvation. So first of all, God is, through this story, uh, Jesus is redefining for us God. That's the first one. He is a father unlike you've ever known. He is a father unlike you've ever known. That's one of the truths that we need to get across and really understand through this. And, uh, and so what we know through this as we go back to the very beginning, he loves us personally, he loves us individually, verses three through seven, the parable of the lost sheep. I mean, this is crazy. He leaves the 99 and goes after the one? Yes. The one? Yes. Why? Because he loves us personally, he loves us individually, but also he loves us persistently, verses eight through 10, the parable of the lost coin. It's just a dang coin. Get, go find another coin. I mean, but the coin means a lot to this woman. She lights the lamp, she sweeps the house, she seeks diligently. Why? Because it's of great value. By the way, the coin did represent one day's wages when you study that out. So that's pretty significant, but obviously the point here is that we are of greater value to our Father in heaven. And so he loves us personally, he loves us persistently, but oh my goodness, the, the daddy heart of God that's revealed through the parable of the lost sons is amazing. He loves us passionately. Verses 11 through 32. And what it shows us is that his heart is bound up with, with his son's complete well-being. His daddy heart is bound up with his, both of his sons, both the younger and the elder brother's well-being. Listen, you have a daddy in heaven that his heart is bound up with your well-being. It's amazing. Amazing. Now, I gave you some verses. You can study on that a little bit more on your own, but some of us have a bit of a problem with referring to God as Father because it's the next point in your notes. Earthly fathers shape our concept of our heavenly Father. Anybody have a perfect Father growing up? Show of hands. Anybody have a perfect Father? Nope, nope, nope. Nobody? No, of course not. None of us had a perfect father. Maybe you had a great father, a good father, and that's great. That's to be applauded. That's fantastic. You have less baggage in your life. But none of us had a perfect father, and so all of us have maybe a little bit of baggage, a little bit of that father wound that we're having to work through, some of us a little bit, some of us a whole lot. And that has a way of skewing how we see our daddy in heaven, our father in heaven. And it's our concept of of God that determines the quality of our relationship with him. More than anyone else, Jesus referred to God as father. He not only modeled that, but he also taught his disciples how to pray. He said, when they asked, Jesus, teach us to pray, he said, pray like this, our Father in heaven. To, to be understood different from earth, he's different from an earthly father, he's a heavenly father, he's a perfect father. Our Father, literally Father, Daddy. 
Matthew 6, 9. Anytime I'm helping people to work through that in their own lives, that, that father wound, parent wound, whatever that might be, I, I'll take them to Psalm 2710. It should be there on your notes. Psalm 2710. This is what it reads. This is what it says. For my father and mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. He will heal me. He will be my father. He will be the one that takes care of me. By the way, this is best learned in the context of community. You'll notice that he says, not my father in heaven, but what? Our father, our father together. So when I see you relate to our daddy, our father in heaven, and you see me relate, we together can learn the, the father, daddy, heart of God for us. And how do you know you're getting healed up? Next point in your notes, your concept is healthy when you run to him to be with him rather than to use him. You know you're being healed up when you're, you know, with, with a healthy view of this is that you begin to run to him, to be with him. You love his presence. I've given you another bunch of verses there you can study on your home, but this, his heart, his heart is bound up with your complete well-being. That's the point. The heart of the Father in heaven is bound up with your well-being, and uh, that, that's, that's important. Those of us that are parents or grandparents, we all know this. Parents are only as happy as their least happy child. How many can relate to that? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. You want your kids to be happy. You want your kids to experience joy. You want your kids um, to, to experience fullness of life. You want the best. You have their well-being bound up in your heart. And that's, that's what we see here. You've heard me say this many times before. And the reason why we're in turmoil over our kids because we're creating the image of God and that's just a dim glimpse of the Father heart of God for us. That's why it tells us in Matthew 7, 7, 11 that though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more does your Father in heaven love to give good gifts to you? And so there has never, never been or will be a parent on earth who wants joy for their child as much as your Father in heaven wants joy for you. So Jesus is redefining God for us in that. And he's a father unlike you've ever known. Here's the next thing. He redefines sin for us. This, this gets a little bit tricky, especially if you don't have a real good understanding of sin. It is more than breaking the rules. It is putting yourself in God's place. That's the essence of sin. More than just breaking rules is putting yourself in God's place. See, breaking the rules, the behavior is the fruit, but putting yourself in God's place is the root. It's, it's, about, it's about our beliefs. It's what we're, we're saying to ourselves about who God is. You guys know the main difference between you and God? You guys know the main difference between you and God? The main difference between you and God is that God never gets confused and thinks that he's you, okay? He never does that, but we do that regularly. We play God. We like to put ourselves in God's place. And listen to me, that's the essence of sin, and you see that as the root of both of these sons' hearts. Verse 12 for the younger son, verse 29 of the older son, they are both using the father to get what their hearts most want. Here's what, how it happens in our own lives goes all the way back to Adam and Eve, continues to work out in our lives. 
So my behavior that would be inconsistent with what the Bible teaches is due to a belief system, and this is what the belief system is about. The belief system is, is, starts with unbelief, that I begin to doubt his love and his goodness working in my life. I think that he's holding out on me. I, I actually start thinking, I don't think he has my best interest at heart. I'm not living in the reality of his perfect love, infinite wisdom, and unlimited power working for my well-being. I don't think he's, his heart's connected to my well-being. So I begin to doubt that. That immediately goes from unbelief to, to pride. Pride is, I think I'm smarter than God. I know better than him. I can figure this out on my own. And then it, it moves right into idolatry. All, idolatry is just counterfeit gods, pseudo-savior. Pseudo because why? We're gonna have something at the center of our life. That's how we were created. We were created to put God at the center of our life. That's why at the, at the top of the list of the, of the 10 commandments, it says, you shall have no other gods before me. There's not a third option there where you can't have a God. You're gonna have a God. It'll either be the one and true living God or it'll be a counterfeit God. And so we violate two through 10 in direct proportion to how we've already violated the first one. Unbelief, pride, idolatry. That's how it goes down in our life. And, and, and so as we deal with wickedness and sin in our culture today, oftentimes people are trying to figure this out. Why, why is that person so wicked? And why did that go wrong in their life? And why does this person do what he's doing? And our culture would tend to say, well, it's DNA. We'll blame our chromosomes or we blame our Conditioning, it was how they were raised. Look at the environment they were raised in. Or their circumstances, oh, look at them. They went through some really bad circumstances. But very rarely do they say, well, they made a choice. They made choices early on in their life, and this is the trajectory of their life. Very seldom do you ever hear that. And yet, if you were to ask the scriptures or God or Jesus, well, what, what, what went wrong with us? Why are we so sinful? The Bible would say, yeah, all of the above. You see that in this story. Why do we do this? Why do we sin? Why do we break the rules we do that because we take God's place, but why do we want to take God's place, and why do we fall into sin? We are lost because of, yes, foolishness. That's the picture of the sheep. Yeah, it's in our chromosomes. We're sinners by nature. That's verse three of the sheep, but it's also due to carelessness. That's, that's the coin, lost coin, conditioning and circumstances. That's verse eight. Yeah, yeah, we're raised in sinful homes. We live in a sinful environment. That contributes to it. But it's also pride and willfulness. That's the choices of both of those sons. That's in verse 11. Both sons were making choices that were contrary to the heart of the father. And so here's the next thing that we understand about this. There are two ways to be your own savior and Lord, two ways of finding happiness, relating to God, dealing with life's problems. You got the younger brother breaking all the rules, self-discovery, verses 11 through 16. I'm gonna figure this out on my own. I don't need dad. I'm gonna do it on my own. And then you've got the elder brother keeping all the rules, moral conformity, verses 25 through 32. Both are ways to achieve self-justification and control God and others. And what, why, why would they do that? Why are they both doing that? It is believing that ultimate satisfaction is found. That's the next point in your notes. Next fill in the blank. It is believing that ultimate satisfaction is found in the father's wealth rather than in his love. They're both, they're both using they're both using the Father. So what? What is that? What do you mean by that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're using the Father when you just, when you take all of what he's given you, you were created by God for God, but you take all of that and you use it for yourself. And you think you're smarter than him and you use it on your own. That's self-discovery. But then the, the elder brother is like, no, yeah, okay, I understand I was created by God, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna earn right standing. And if I do all the right things, then God will give me what I really want in my life. 
I'm going to go to church and read my Bible and do all that because I'm going to use him to get something else that's more important to me than him. I love what uh, Timothy Keller says in his book, which I think is a great resource for this study. It's The Prodigal God, Recovering the Heart of the Christian Faith by Timothy Keller. This is what he writes. The gospel of Jesus is not religion or irreligion, morality or immorality, moralism or relativism, conservatism or liberalism, nor is it something halfway along a spectrum between two poles. It is something else altogether. The gospel is distinct from the other two approaches. So it's, so it's telling us there's only, there's only three ways you can live. You can live a irreligious life, a religious life, or the gospel life. This is what he's showing us. So the gospel is distinct from the other two approaches. In its view, everyone is wrong, everyone is loved, and everyone is called to recognize this and change. Now, by contrast, elder brothers divide the world in two. The good people, like us, are in, and the bad people, who are the real problem with the world, are out. Younger brothers, even if they don't believe in God at all, do the same thing, saying, no, no, the open-minded and tolerant people are in, and the bigoted, narrow-minded people who are the real problem with the world are out. Do you hear in those two comparisons, that contrast between the two, do you hear the two major political parties (laughs) of our culture today? They're right there. They're right there. And Jesus says, the humble are in and the proud are out, Luke 18, 14. So he's redefining sin. Sin goes much deeper than breaking the rules. It's taking God's place, and you can do that either by, uh, by being a younger brother or an elder brother. But here's where salvation will help us to understand more clearly what this is about. He redefines salvation for us. It begins with the initiating love of the father. The father goes out to both sons in order to bring them in. This is the daddy heart of God for all of us. If you only knew the father heart of God for you, I mean, it would change you, it would change everything, and you see that here, the initiating, the preemptive love of the father. With the younger son, the father runs out to him and smothers him with kisses before he repents, verse 20, and it's not the repentance that brings the father's love, it's the father's love that brings the repentance. It's always, it's always the father's love that turns our hearts back to him. Not behavioral modification, it's heart transformation. We do the things we do because we don't believe that he has our best interest at heart. So when we begin to see more clearly, he does. He loves me. No one has loved me more. We, woo, we run to him. That's what you see. And with the elder brother, the father goes to him and tenderly pleads with him to come in, verse 28, showing us, showing us it's possible to leave the father without leaving the farm. You can come to church week in and week out, and this is what I hate to say is that we have a lot of elder brothers in American churches these days that run off a lot of the younger brothers. It's possible to leave the father without leaving the farm. It is received by humble repentance for not only breaking the rules, but why you would ever keep the rules. Why you, this gets a little tricky here, so we're dealing with both, so, so you confess your sins, but you also confess why you would do the good things that you would do. 
Elder brothers have to confess their wrong reasons for being moral and being virtuous and why they do what they do. See, there's a major difference between a morally restrained will and a supernaturally transformed heart that's smitten by the beauty and the glory of Christ. You guys know this, and I've talked a lot about it, but you, you guys know this, I'm sure. You know that you can take a dishonest person and make them a very honest person for all the wrong reasons. I mean, we would all agree that the younger brother has self-centeredness in his heart, doesn't he? Would you guys agree with that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What about the elder brother? Does he have self-centeredness in his heart? Yeah. Is he virtuous? Yeah, yeah, in a, in a s- certain degree. I mean, if you were to look at the elder brother, if you look at the Pharisees and the religious leaders, oh my goodness, from the outside in, they look virtuous. They're moral. And yet, why? What's going on in their heart? So here's the deal, is, and I've seen this in American Christianity, is we take younger brothers and we turn them into elder brothers because we don't deal with what's fundamentally wrong at the center of all of us, and it's our self-centeredness. We don't, you don't hijack self-centeredness and use fear and pride. See, fear and pride will restrain the heart, and I hear a lot of people being motivated by fear and pride. That's elder brother motivation, fear and pride. It's only love. Fear and pride can restrain the heart. Listen, only love, the love of the Father can transform the heart from the inside out. Why do you do the good you do? Why are you here? Why do you put money in the box? Don't do it out of being a, an elder brother. And, I, and so it doesn't deal with what's fundamentally. So, so you can be, so both of them, you know, in fact, the elder brother is moral, he's virtuous, he's kind for himself. And it's why we, we, why many apparently moral people can fall into great sins. Because it was all a facade. Many times it was just external. It wasn't something that was motivated intrinsically because that's who they are. If you want to learn more about that, we talked about that. Uh, download the DB app a number of weeks ago. Probably one of the most listened to messages of late, probably since we've been in existence, is the heart one. Uh, heart, we talked about the heart. And a few weeks ago, this one was even a more listened to one, the power of change. And then a couple weeks, we talked about repentance, all of those. But here's what it is. Next, last point, we're almost finished. Your heart will be captivated by its cost, by what it costs the Father to bring you home. That's it, that's it. That's what motivates our hearts. That's what changes our hearts. Your heart will be captivated by what it costs the Father to bring you home. There's a hint in verse 31 when the Father says to the elder brother, all that is mine is yours, which is literally true. After the Father had split the inheritance one-third to the younger and two-thirds to the, to the older uh, brother, every robe and ring and fattened calf now belong to the elder brother, and it would be at his expense to bring the younger brother home. Now, what's fascinating about this, we're almost finished here, and this is really critical that you get this last point. The parable is the third in rapid-fire succession of Jesus showing us the Father heart of God. There's no doubt about it. But in all three stories, something is lost, something is found, and then there's great festive celebration and rejoicing when what was lost is found. But there is one striking difference between the third parable and the first two. In the first two, someone goes out and searches diligently for that which is lost, but in the third one, no one goes out and searches. What is that telling us? No one goes out and searches. I believe this is what it's telling us. Jesus gives us a bad elder brother in this story, by the way, who depicts the Pharisees. Uh, 
so that we will long for the true elder brother, the Lord Jesus Christ, so that our hearts would be drawn to him. In his book, The Prodigal God, Timothy Keller says that theologian Edmund Clowney recounts the true story of a young man who was a U.S. soldier missing in action during the Vietnam War, and when the family could get no word of him through any official channel, the older son flew to Vietnam and, risking his life, searched the jungles and the battlefields for his lost brother. And it's said that despite the danger, he was never hurt because those on both sides had heard of his dedication and respected his quest. Some of them called him simply the brother. It's what our true elder brother, Jesus, has done for us. He came to seek and to save, Luke 19.10, to seek and to save those that are lost. For God loved us so much that he sent his son to this world for you and I to rescue us, to love us, to bring us home. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Let's pray. So Father God, thank you. Thank you that on the cross, Jesus was treated as an outcast so that we could be brought into your family freely by grace. And he was stripped naked so that we could be robed in the Father's righteousness. And he drank the cup of the eternal justice so that we might have the cup of the Father's joy and not miss the party. There was no other way for you, our Father in heaven, to bring us in except at the expense of our true elder brother who paid our debt in our place. May our hearts be forever captivated by the wonder of the person and work of our Savior Jesus, setting us free, set us free from being either younger or elder brothers. In his beautiful and holy name, we pray these things, and everyone said, amen. Love you guys.